1: E tēnei, te Welcome to the sound of carefully controlled chaos Four intermediate school students blind to the real world with headsets on and flailing arms wielding controllers are readying themselves for some marine biology work.
0: I'm about to research to see how many lobsters there are Mm. right now. So I'm going to go to take a dive and I'm going to go see some lobsters.
1: Sounds pretty fun. And without having to leave the comfort of the airy, tiled foyer of the Wellington University Coastal Ecology Lab. Kia ora, naumai mai ki au hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, co-clerk and Canon DNA. Today we join in with a group of students from Evans Bay Intermediate School as they visit the Coastal Ecology Lab. They're here to learn about what Professor James Bell and some of his colleagues get up to.
2: So what we want to do is really to try and introduce you to what marine biologists do in their daily life. So while you might have some expectation of what we do on TV, you might think we spend all day swimming with whales and dolphins, um, and and some people do spend a lot of time swimming with whales and dolphins, there are a whole tonne of other marine biologists who do lots of other different things.
1: In fact, neither James nor his colleague Dr Alice Rogers spend any of their days swimming with whales or dolphins. They're into other things.
2: So Alice works a lot on fish, and I work a lot of stuff that lives on the seafloor, particularly on sea sponges. And in New Zealand and other places in the world, if you go down below about 30 metres, then pretty much everything you see is lots and lots of sea sponges.
1: The Coastal Ecology Lab on the Esplanade in Island Bay sits at the edge of the rocky coast that forms part of the Tapitaranga Marine Reserve. It's a base for much of the marine science work that happens out of Victoria University of Wellington. The session starts with a bit of an introduction to some of the equipment that a marine biologist might use such as a metre by metre quadrat for marking out a survey area underwater, and a transect tape, along the length of which a researcher might count how many fish they see, and a white slate for taking down data, which is also useful for other things.
2: What can you do on land but you can't do underwater? There are lots of answers to this question, but there is one in particular I'm thinking about. What am I doing now? I am... Okay, so underwater you can't talk. So we use this as a form of communication. If Alice is being really annoying and went swimming in the direction that I want to swim, then I write down, no, we're going this way, and then just she still ignores me, Yeah, and then just swims off. So we can, we can use it to communicate. You probably all know that we have various dive signals when we're underwater, um, but there are some things that are hard to say without, um, without words.
1: Many things are different when you're trying to do science underwater. As he flashes up a picture of a camera system that can count fish along a transit line, James explains why the camera is so chunky.
2: Anybody seen scuba divers on TV? Often they have, you know, big gloves on because it's cold in the water. So all the buttons and stuff are quite chunky to make it easier to manipulate. But what, um, what increases as you go down deeper in the ocean? Pressure. Pressure. OK, so inside there is a gas space. So if it wasn't chunky and thick, then basically it would, it would compress and it would implode.
1: And because of the pressure at depths, James often doesn't dive down to see sponges himself. Instead, he sends down some fancy equipment.
2: So we would call that a remotely operated vehicle, an ROV or a ROV, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, So the university has four different or four of these, three different types. A small, bright
1: ROV is being passed between the students as they sit on beanbags in a semicircle, listening to James. This one costs about six grand, he says, and can go down about 100 metres. But on the screen behind him is a much bigger one, a bright yellow tube in a frame of black with a large cyclops-esque lens at the front, encircled with lights.
2: The one on the picture, which I don't have right here here at the moment because it's doing stuff, um, is also one of ours, and this one is about $150,000. Normally, what we do is we put that small, cheaper one in first. We send that one down to the seafloor, see what the conditions are like before we even decide if we're going to send this one in. We mostly use it for the big dome at the front to collect uh, kind of video images of the animals and the plants and the communities that we find in kind of deeper waters.
1: Basically, the ROV lets them see things at depths that they just couldn't dive down to.
2: Most of the diving that's done in this lab is done down to about 30 metres. We can potentially dive for science down to about 40 metres, but deeper than that becomes really quite a a technical and logistical challenge. So scuba divers can reach, with special training, maybe 100 metres, but these ROVs will go down to kind of, this one will be 200, 250 metres, much deeper than what we could go scuba diving.
1: The resulting videos are captivating. kaleidoscopes of colour and texture on the ocean floor.
2: So all of those colourful things, all of those really bright colourful patches that you can see everywhere, are all different types of sea sponge. The videos that I just showed you are probably one of the most surprising things that I think any of us have seen around New Zealand. When we got our ROV and we sent it down to 100 metres, we weren't really sure what we were going to find. And to find these kind of amazing animal-dominated environments was just, you know, we were all like really, really amazed and so was everybody on the boat.
1: It's funny how you can really get into something that you've never even considered before when you listen to someone passionate talk about it. And as it turns out, I'm not the only one who's developing an interest in sea sponges. But with the presentation over,
2: we move on. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna take you for a little bit of a tour around the building. So you can see you know, some of the activities that are going on, some of the things we've got here. And then we're gonna split you into two groups. One group is going to come down here and do a bit of a, a VR headset session and the other group is going to go in the lab and do some fish counting and then we're going to swap over. So everybody's going to get an opportunity to, to have a go at everything.
1: The lab's coastal location is key for what they do here. A few hundred metres down the road is a slip from which the lab's two dive boats can be launched for research. When not in use, they sit in a shed just off the main building. Out back is a large tank with some live crayfish inside that all the students climb up to get a look at.
0: Whenever we've got animals, we try to create some space for them to hide because we don't want to stress them out by being in tanks because it's an unusual place for them, right? So we put them something in there that so that they can kind of hide like they normally would in, in their natural environment. Have you seen crayfish before? Yeah, um... I've done like lots of snorkeling and stuff before. Yeah. So. Around here? Yeah, yeah. I've been to um, Red Rocks and also in the Marine Reserve.
1: I really enjoy
0: diving down and looking at all like their habitat and stuff. Yeah, marine biology is like really cool. Do you think you guys will want to do it? Probably. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, it might be an option.
1: Yeah, I've always been quite interested in marine biology. Beside this is what looks like a washing line with numbered fishy outlines hanging off it. This is a recreation of an underwater transect line that a marine biologist might use. As part of this session, the students will test their skills in estimating fish sizes on a dive as they pretend to swim by. White slates in hand, they will note down the size, but no holding the ruler on the edge of the slate up to the silhouette. That would only scare the fish but for me the most interesting area we visit is the wet lab spaces as alice explains a pumping system brings seawater under the road and up into this room
0: and that means that we can we can access fresh seawater straight out the ocean and use it in our tanks here so we've got some animals in here which you'll be able to have a look at in a little while and they're all really happy here because they're able to just get water straight from the sea so it keeps them really happy and it allows us to work with the animals here which we can't do at any other of our facilities in the university. And so just behind you, you can see kind of an example of how an experiment might be set up by one of our students. So this one says it's a light experiment. So you see the the tubs have all got their lids on and probably those animals, there'll be small fish that are living in there and they'll be getting exposed to different kinds of light. So this one is probably about the effects of moonlight on that behavior of some of those fish. So some of our academics work a lot on moonlight and how it affects larval fish and that kind of thing. I might send you through into the next room with James and he can show you one of our experimental setups
1: about climate change in there. Which he did, but then, we all got distracted by sponges.
2: So um, I said before I work on sponges, these are some of our small sponges that are left over from our experiments and some which have been reproducing in case you're wondering what a sea sponge looks like. All of these little colourful little dots in here are different types of sponges. Yeah, so sponges don't actually do that much, apart from sit there and suck in large quantities of water and strip out all the tiny particles. And we're kind of really interested in in trying to figure out how much of that they do. Um, Alice is going to introduce you to some of the other animals over there as well that may be more um, more exciting. Ah, James.
1: You underestimate the captivating power of the sponge. This is when the questions began.
2: All right, back outside with... Oh, yeah. Um, Are there any specific things that the sponges filter out? So, yes, so they they filter small stuff, so things less than about 5 micrometers, which is kind of smaller than what you can see. So what the sponges do is they capture all... So they filter the water, they capture all the small planktonic particles, all the tiny um, diatoms and tiny seaweed and algae and bacteria that are in the seawater, and then they basically feed on that, and all of their waste products, uh, believe it or not, that's the sponge poo, if you like, on the, on the bottom of the tray there. And then other things will come along, little um, starfish, little crabs, and we'll feed on that. And then other things will feed on those crabs and starfish and eventually make its way further up the food chain. So sponges are really important in kind of recycling material through the food chain.
0: How many like different species of sp- sea sponges would you say that we'd have here in New
2: Zealand? So in New Zealand, there are about 800 different species. So there's about probably 60 or 70 on the Wellington coast that we know. Um, and quite a lot of those species don't even have a name yet. So there are large numbers that are undescribed.
0: Yep. What would you say your favourite species
2: is? My favourite species would have to be a sponge. Um, I, I particularly like uh, that red sponge down there. Um, and that's a sponge that we've used in the lab for a long time. And we know lots about and also it's, I like it because it stays alive in the lab. So sponges often don't like being in a, in a laboratory situation, which is why we do lots of our work out in the marine environment.
0: Have you discovered any
1: types of sea sponges?
2: Most of the time when we send the ROV down, we're looking at different types of species that haven't been described. So while I haven't named any myself, and it's quite a complicated, tricky process to name, name species generally, I'd say that there are lots that I've seen that are, are undescribed and don't have a name. So yeah, pretty much on every dive, I'd say.
0: Um, like, why would you really have to think about ethics? Because they're sort of like a plant, right?
2: So the early, early scientists actually thought the sponges were plants. So the ethics around sponges, so sponges don't feel pain, like a, a fish or something like that. But um, I guess, the ethics more comes around the impact that you're having on that animal. So if we go out and do an experiment or you know, want to collect some sponges and we collect all of the sponges from that particular place, we might completely wipe out the population. They might never come back, you know, or might not come back for a really long time. So it's about you know, thinking about your impact on the environment. So it isn't the same way as maybe a fish where you might think, oh, it's going to be it's going to be hurt, you know, if we do things to it in a lab. It's more about your kind of impact on the environment.
0: Um, how come the sponges don't feel pain?
2: That's a really good question. They don't have a, a complex nerve system, like a nervous system like, like we do. So, yeah, so they don't have the same receptor cells to, to trigger and respond to pain. Right, I'm going to have to stop you as much as I know you'd like to. So we might come back and get you later, but Alice wants to move on. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not going to get to any other things that she wants you to do. Sorry.
1: He's talking to me there, well aware that I'm delighted to be taking a back seat and letting the students do my job for me. In fact, James did ask both I and teacher Amanda whether we had planted sponge questions. And I can assure you that neither of us did. But I did have a few more. So as the class files out, some to have a go at estimating fish sizes, others to get a turn at the virtual reality headsets, James and I head to his office to chat. Thanks to the intense grilling James has just undergone... I have an idea now of what sponges do, but I'm still not fully clear on what exactly they are.
2: I guess in the the early days when people were classifying plants and animals, sponges did get lumped in with the plants, but sponges are, are definitely animals. They've been around on the planet for at least 600 million years, in probably a relatively similar format to what they look like now. Um, there's been some recent debate and some papers in, uh, in, in Nature suggesting they might even be older than that, and the, the very oldest of animals, maybe even you know, 900 million years old, but that's highly debated in the literature. Simply sponges are, um, are mostly a, a collection of, of cells, which are you know, a big sack of cells that are effectively specialised in pumping large quantities of water from the water column and efficiently stripping out the particles.
1: And they come in a range of shapes and sizes.
2: They do. I, I actually have a whole, whole heap of papers on why sponges are different shapes and sizes. Um, a lot of that is driven obviously by their evolutionary history but also a lot of it is driven by the environment. So different sponges in different places will have different morphologies to suit them to those environments. So you might get, for example, more branching and upright sponges in places where there's lots of sediment because the sediment then doesn't settle on their surfaces So, or in high energy environments where there's lots of wave action or current, you might get very kind of thin, encrusting sponges because they don't get knocked off by the the strong wave action. So yeah, they they come in a a variety of shapes, sizes and colours The the one question that I get asked a lot, which I can't answer, um, is why they are different colours I don't, you know, an active area of research but I'm not quite sure why they are different colours, but they are lots of different colours
1: And they would get uh, mistaken for a lot. For corals, how can you tell, what's the difference between a sponge and a coral and how that's can a, you tell?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really good question. Often when we put uh, videos in front of the, the school kids, quite often they, you know, say the first thing they say when they see a sponge is, oh, it's a coral. I think it's because they see more of corals on TV and that's kind of maybe what people expect because they see it on TV. Um, it, sounds, it sounds really crazy, but the main way to tell them apart is that sponges are spongy. So if you press them, they're kind of compressible, whereas most corals, particularly those on kind of coral reefs, are hard. Um, So they're they're not compressible. If you look at them on a kind of more, I guess, cellular or microscopic level, your sponges have quite a different structure on their surfaces. They're, you know, really, really quite different. But from uh, somebody just swimming up to them, if if it feels spongy, then it probably is a sponge. Got it.
1: Aptly named then. So James has been using ROVs to survey different areas around Aotearoa to look for sponges. And sometimes he comes across these large arrays, which researchers and divers call sponge gardens.
2: It's only recently we've been exploring what we call um, mesophotic ecosystems. So these are ecosystems that are kind of at the, the limit of light for photosynthesis, that we're finding that these environments are really dominated mostly by sponges, and not, not just in New Zealand, but in other parts of the world too. Um, and they really are like sponge gardens. The colours are just amazing, the shapes are really varied. We think, I guess, that they're, they're really ecologically important, and we're sort of only just beginning to understand how important these, these um, sponge gardens might be.
1: And is that the only kind of depths and areas that you find sponges, or do you find them in lots of different situations?
2: No, you find them basically. You find them all the way from the intertidal to the very deep sea. So they're very diverse in terms of their habitat requirements. So they're yeah they're found all over the world, all of the oceans, and you know right to the bottom of the oceans.
1: This has been the most surprising finding for James, just how widespread they are.
2: So there are places at the poor nights, um, even in the Wellington coast as well, pretty much everywhere we look, where the sponges occupy anywhere between kind of 40 to maybe 70 or 80 percent of the available rock surface. They are they are the, the most dominant thing there. And I guess when I started out working on sponges in New Zealand maybe 20 years ago, people didn't really think that sponges were an abundant group. They didn't think they were that important. Um, and increasingly, as we've traveled around New Zealand looking at these different environments, we find that sponges are, are in many cases the most dominant and most abundant animal. And as I say, particularly in these, these mesophotic ecosystems.
1: Okay, so there's lots of them. Why should we care?
2: We, we don't really know actually what the, the ecological importance of these gardens is just yet. But some of our research is, is kind of is starting to understand what that might be.
1: This is where we get to talk about the wonders of sponge poo.
2: There's evidence from the tropical environments that sponges are really important in releasing this detritus, which is then consumed by other organisms living on the seafloor, and then those organisms are consumed by things higher up the food chain. So sponges are kind of really important in collecting that material from the water column, moving the food material to the seafloor expelling sponge waste or sponge poo for a better term and then that is consumed by other organisms that are subsequently fed on by things higher up the food chain so they're part of a kind of seafloor water column column loop
1: they're kind of ecosystem engineers
2: yeah they they are a type of ecosystem engineer through that that activity um, the other thing that we think is really important in those those sponge gardens is the massive different shapes and sizes that creates habitat complexity on the seafloor, which creates lots of places for other things to, to live in. So you know we've put um, we've put light traps down in those environments, and we collect all sorts of little critters living that seem to be living and associated with those habitats. Little so shrimps, crabs, um, starfish, squid, all those kind of things that are associated with the seafloor and living you know, on and in between those sponges. and the other animals down there. So so we're we're just starting to understand how important these ecosystems might be. It's quite possible that fish then come along and feed on all those things. So if the sponges weren't there providing that habitat, there wouldn't be all of those smaller other things for the fish to come down and feed on. So we're, we're just starting to understand that stuff or trying to understand that stuff.
1: But just as we're starting to understand sponges, we're also finding out how much trouble they might be in. Scientists say it is now clear the mass bleaching of native sea sponges in Fjordland is likely the largest event of its type in the world. And there's emerging evidence that an ongoing marine heat wave is also causing damage in the Haraki Gulf
2: a big chunk of my research over the last 10 years or so has focused on the impacts of climate change and, and other stresses on, on sponges. And I've actually spent a lot of my um, my scientific career advocating that sponges are going to be the, the winners on tropical coral reefs in response to climate change. Um, and that's because they seem to be more tolerant to climate change on, on coral reefs, or, or lots of sponges are, than what corals are. While we... Um, hadn't done a lot of work trying to understand climate change impacts on temperate sponges, like in New Zealand, um, the work that we had done suggested they might also be reasonably tolerant. And that was until early in May 2022, when there were reports from Fiordland of a whole load of sponges that had turned completely white. Um, They'd gone through a process of what we call bleaching, similar to what we see in corals that bleach on, um, on tropical Brief environments. We had some people who were working in Fiordland who first reported this. We went down and had a bit more of a look. And those those bleaching events seem to correlate really strongly with a, an extreme warm water temperature event that happened in Fjordland during that time period.
1: Here's RNZ climate reporter Hamish Cadwell speaking to James at the time. Striking images emerged last month of thousands of a species of native sea sponge that are usually a healthy velvety brown, bleached bone white. Initial estimates were that hundreds of thousands of the sponges were affected in the Fiordland sounds, but findings from a new research trip indicate the damage is far worse.
2: At least millions of sponges that have been bleached in those environments, maybe even you know tens of millions. This is one of the most abundant sponges in Fiordland. So it's a, a really wide-scale event. This is the largest reported, as far as I'm aware, temperate sponge bleaching event that, that's been reported anywhere in the world. But there was more. Subsequently, in talking to other researchers, particularly um, Dr Nick Shears at uh, Auckland University, um, we found that there are actually reports of sponges being impacted in other parts of New Zealand as well, Um, again correlating with extreme temperature events that occurred in those regions to the north. In Fiordland, the impacts were sponge bleating, so one of the species in particular went a bright white. Um, In the north of New Zealand, it was was potentially worse, although maybe it didn't get reported as, as much, and a lot of sponges basically kind of started decaying. Um, started losing their tissue. Some of them just kind of slothed, if you like, off the off the rock. Um, and I've got pictures of sponges that appear to have detached from the rock and then were washed up on the beach. Um, and again, you know, we, we think that this is a result of, of temperature stress. We've done, subsequently, we've done some temperature stress experiments in the lab on some species and sponges don't seem to like temperature that much, but it's highly variable between species. So some of them, don't seem to mind it too much, while others are, are quite susceptible to those those changes in temperatures. And I guess while a lot of our work had focused on kind of climate change impacts that are going to happen in the next you know, 100 years or so, we would expose sponges to maybe two degrees warmer than normal. What we're actually more concerned about now is the impacts of um, marine heat waves. We're actually seeing those extremes of temperature that we were thinking we were going to get in 100 years' time. We're actually getting peaks of those and much warmer that are happening now. Um, and some organisms, in this case it seems to be sponges, or some sponge species, don't be able to be able to cope with that.
1: Okay. This is dark. I know. This is where we should all take a deep breath. It's hard to hear and it's hard to think about. 2021 was the hottest year in New Zealand record, but it's been swiftly beaten by 2022. Warming is happening and there will be vast and significant changes to many ecosystems. Knowing this, what's next for James and his research?
2: One of the big things we want to understand is why some species are susceptible to those heat wave events and some species of sponge are, don't appear to be affected by it in the same way. Um, we think one of the drivers of that is the microorganisms that are associated with the sponges themselves. So, sponges are, uh, although I describe them as being a simple collection of cells they're actually quite a complex organism that forms relationships with a ton of microbes and different types of microbes that live within them and we think the presence of different microbes may be one of the keys to why some sponge species are able to you know survive or deal with warmer temperatures and others can't Um, so that's a a kind of really big important um, important step the other thing that we're kind of keen to know is what would be the impact of losing sponges? If there were more big marine heat waves and we saw large numbers of sponges die, what would be the impact on other organisms? I guess, would it matter? Um, some of the trophic relationships that I talked about before, those food web relationships that sponges are involved with, they they wouldn't happen probably if sponges weren't there. That habitat complexity that they create wouldn't be there either. But what does that mean for the wider ecosystem? W- would it matter? I guess we we think it does matter. I mean, there are, I guess, you know, moral and ethical reasons why we should care, you know, from... From that point of view, but um, what are the ecological and I guess fisheries consequences potentially from the loss of those, those sponge gardens?
1: It's this pragmatic approach to climate change among scientists that I find useful to think about. Accepting that change is coming, but actively trying to determine what that change will be and what it will mean.
2: From a, a research point of view, I think it's really important we, we focus on the impacts of these marine heatwaves. We, we should be thinking about the impacts of climate change now and the actions that are needed to be taken now, not 5, 10, 15 years away, um, because we're already seeing you know, the, the major impacts of climate change stress on marine communities.
1: But James also sees days like these as an equally important part of his job.
2: Yeah, I mean, our hope is is by bringing the school children into the marine lab is to inspire the next generation of marine biologists. I guess that's ultimately what we're here to do at the university. We're here to do research, but we're also here to provide and training for marine biologists who hopefully will be the ones looking after our environment in the future.
1: Hopefully, we will have left them something to look after. Is there an aspect of marine biology that you'd like to know more about? Uh, Probably. How hot will the, or what would the temperature be of the ocean if we keep using fossil fuels? Is climate change something you worry about? Yes, especially for the future. Thanks to marine biologists, Professor James Bell and Dr. Alice Rogers from Tehera Nawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, and to Amanda Hood from Evans Bay Intermediate School. And of course, a big thanks to the school students for asking so many interesting sponge questions and for answering all of mine. This episode was produced by me, Claire Cannon, with help from Justin Gregory and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. And Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Check out our website at rnz.co.nz slash our changing world. James has shared some sponge garden footage that we've put up there. And we'll also share it on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. While you're online, do also check out the podcast and series tab on the RNZ website. There you can find all of RNZ's podcasts. And there is a wide range of quality offerings. If you haven't done so already, do make time to listen to the second season of the Aotearoa History Show. William Ray and Mani Dunlop bring you 14 excellent historical deep dives into a variety of topics, including pandemics, the native land court, women's suffrage and teenagers. Thanks for listening. I'm Claire Cannon. Have a great week. Kia pai bo wiki.